Listen, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're in the book of Romans, uh, but we're going to start in Ephesians this morning. You know, we live in an age of people standing up for things, of letting their voice be heard. If you're more of the mindset of silence is golden, uh, you are living in the wrong time <laughs> because that is no longer uh, seemingly a value. Now, much of this is really good. Um, except when it's not. And some of the underlying idea behind rocking the vote, speaking up, letting your voice be heard, is so long as it depends with me and agrees with me. And if not, then keep quiet. And that's some of the sort of fight we have going on in our culture. I want you to think right now about what it is that you're willing to speak up for. And maybe you're one that speaks up for lots of things, so I'll have to sort of say it this way. What do you speak up for the loudest and the most? I think if you're someone who doesn't speak up for a lot of things, but you finally are pushed to a point of speaking up, it says a lot about you, about what topic that is, what idea that is that makes you finally get over um, you know, maybe your shyness or your propensity not to do that. And if you're one who talks a lot and stands up for a lot of things, to take inventory say, what is it that I speak up for the loudest and the most passionately? I believe that Christians have a real opportunity to show off who God is and what he is like simply by how and what we speak up for. And then also what we don't speak up for and don't talk about. We are called, if you're a Christian, you are called to stand up for God. Does this sound familiar? That you're called to stand up for God? Nod your head yes if you're hearing me. Good. Okay. I didn't think I was alone in this, but I want to make sure. Um, so we are called as a Christian to, to, to bear witness, to open our mouth, to, to stand up for God. But we need more than signs and bumper stickers. You think about a sign and a bumper sticker, it is designed more to shout which tribe I am a part of and which, which idea I'm a part of rather than to convince. It doesn't open up dialogue. It's not really an argument. It's just sort of an assertion, right, that, that puts out there who, who we are for. I was blessed to, to grow up with a dad who was always speaking up for God. And I've shared with you in the past that I went through a season of my life where that was very embarrassing. And I remember thinking, Dad, we're on vacation. Like, leave the guy alone. You know, take a vacation from God for a moment and stop speaking up for God. But of all of the encounters that I witnessed for my dad speaking up for God, here's, here's the impression that was left on my, on my childhood heart that I picked up most. I got the impression that my dad really knew God and that it hurt him to have his name drugged through the mud. So I don't remember all the encounters and all the conversations that went on, but the impression I was left with was, wow, dad acts like he really knows God and, and that it would hurt him, just like it would hurt uh, you know, him to have his wife's name drugged through the mud or, or talked poorly about. And that, and that stuck with me. You know, pastors are called in a unique way to be ready. Second Timothy is a book, as most of you know, from an older pastor, Paul, writing to um, his son in the faith. Timothy, and here's what he says. He says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience 
and teaching. We hear the second part of this a lot. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Look at the context, though. The context of what he's saying is that God is going to judge the living and the dead. There's a sense of urgency that's created with that. Secondly, notice that he says, preach the word. It's the word of God that changes people. It's the word of God that people need to hear from because that's what changes people, not the words of us. And finally, you see the great variety of communication that's needed. When it's in season and out of season, there's a great variety of communication that needs to come from the word of God. Every Christian is called to be ready, willing, and able to defend the faith, to speak up. Let me direct your attention to 1 Peter 3.15. It says this, But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I want you to hold on to the words gentleness and respect. We're going to come back to those, okay? So do you see that pastors are uniquely called to preach the word and proclaim? Every Christian is to be ready, willing, and able to speak up and defend their faith. I bring these two passages up because today Paul is not only proclaiming the gospel, but he explains and defends the gospel. Paul doesn't leave it as just sort of barfing out God's plan for salvation, being done, and walking away. And I really hope that you got it, but there it is. I told you the truth. He proclaims the gospel, and now what he's doing in Romans, and again, it gets a little technical. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks. We're we're in this portion of scripture that can be a little bit hard to grab onto. But what he's doing is he's carefully explaining what he's just proclaimed. And today what we're going to do is we're going to see him use a literary device of sort of a would-be opponent and predicting what questions he would ask so he sets up almost a Q&A with himself. Okay, That's what we're going to walk into. If you're in this room and you're undecided, I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you to listen to the flow of logic that Paul is laying out to defend the reasonableness of the gospel. Now, he's doing this with a very particular tribe, the Jewish mindset. He's, he's tackling a Jewish worldview. He knows this worldview really well because Paul's Jewish. He came out of this. He was converted out of this um, worldview. If you are the convinced this morning, you're a Christian, I want you to watch and learn because you're called to be ready and to speak up. Paul did this so often. In fact, by this point, he's probably been preaching the gospel for 20 years. So he can predict. Think if you're a college professor and you've taught the same intro to philosophy course for 20 years. Wouldn't you be able to predict where the questions are going to come? At exactly what point in the lecture people are going to start to go, Oh, but wait a minute. Well, this is what Paul's done. Paul's been doing this for a long time. He knows his countrymen. He knows where the pushback is going to be. He knows right where the arguments are going to start to get confused look on their faces. And so he attacks those preemptively. Here's the powerful thing, Christian. As we watch Paul model this for us, we can do this too. And here's how. Here's how you can preemptively predict uh, where the questions are going to come. Here it is. Listen. If you are a good listener, if you're genuinely present and interested in people, you too can predict where the pushback to the truth claims of Christianity will show up. And here's why. Human beings have this propensity. They can't help themselves. Out of their heart 
come pouring forth words and speech that reveal the heart. So if you're really a good listener, here's what you can discover. You can discover people's problems, their concerns, their priorities, their hopes, and their fears. People can't help themselves. Out of the mouth comes pictures of the heart. We are, as Christians, called to defend not only the reasonableness of the gospel, but the reputation of God. And I start this morning with this, because that's exactly what Paul is modeling for us. Here's a question for you and me. Do we respect people enough to think hard about what their objections are or might be? Do we love them enough to think about that way? Do we care enough about the message and the person to do the hard work of truly communicating? I love how George Bernard Shaw said this. The biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. We can think that we're communicating things, and yet it's not being received. It might be politely nodded to to get you off their back, but do we care enough about the message and the person to really do the hard work of communicating? Christians are called not only to stand up for God, but they're instructed on how to stand up for God. It is not a free-for-all of how you are wired in your personality. Because of what we're saved from, our flesh, our old self, has a way of doing things. Paul's an amazing picture of a very intense, argumentative, not-afraid-of-confrontation type guy that God redeems and uses that for gospel proclamation and church planting. We are instructed to put to death certain things and awaken and fan into flame certain things. If we get the message right, but the method wrong, we are 50% right, which means we're also 50% wrong, which those of you who remember or are in school, 50% I think is still an F, right? So it behooves us to really understand not just what we're proclaiming and get our doctrine right, but get an understanding of how we're to present it. Ephesians Chapter 4, verse 29, follow along if you're turned there. It says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If you don't know where to start memorizing Scripture in 2017, start right here. Just start chewing and soaking and thinking on that passage. It will show up all day long for you. It goes on to give clarity as to how to do this. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is a very serious offense he's addressing. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I've read three passages from the scriptures this morning. Let me highlight this fact. All three of them are a command to proclaim, and all three of them have a rather stern warning about how it's to be done. For pastors with complete patience. For all Christians, when you're asked to give a reason for the hope, you're to do it with gentleness and respect. And in this passage here, we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but rather be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Church, what if civility were to absolutely shine in the public square again? That civil discourse were to go on 
and it were led by those who were sealed for the day of redemption, by those who were called Christians, by those who were truly following Jesus? What if we led the way in that because we chose to simply obey Scripture and just put away calamity, malice, slander, all the junk that we see going on nonstop in our culture? instead of wading down into the cesspool and fighting and arguing and bickering in that same tone. The truth of the matter is, civility isn't really even going far enough. Civility has to do with courteous, respectful, maybe tolerant kinds of dialogue. I think that's a good starting point. But truth be told, all you have to be is a, you know, America-loving law-abiding citizen to think that's a worthy goal and I'm going to try to strive for that. If your parents taught you good manners or you overcame a poor manners upbringing and you have a decent sense of manners, you might be able to get here. It doesn't take the new birth to be civil. We are called as Christians, as I just read, to not just be civil, but to be kind. Kindness includes these kinds of things, being affectionate, being generous, being intentional. It's no less than civility, right? But it, it, it takes civility and it launches forward. And we see things like Jesus who's loving his enemies, Stephen who prays and prays blessing on those who are not hurling insults alone, but rocks to kill him for the views that he's standing on. Listen to how Paul, and then we'll get to our passage, I promise, but listen to how Paul blends kindness logic, and standing up, and he blends it all into like a great-tasting witness smoothie, and he delivers it up. Okay, just listen to this, because it's not going to be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 10, I wrote these this passage in your notes so you can read it later. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you, catch this, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Hear that last sentence again. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. There are some lofty opinions formed against our Savior in San Jose and the surrounding cities. Christian, we're called to stand up. And we have divine power that is with us. This is what Paul is doing today in the text. I want to show you in a, in a, in a broader context what he's doing. So as we march into this passage, we can see him. He's destroying arguments raised up against God. And he does this by setting up a Q&A with himself. Remember from last week that Paul destroyed the comfy safe house of religious birthright and ritual. And Paul did this specifically. It was being Jewish, uh, having the law and circumcision. And he did this in love. He dismantled what they were trusting in. He wanted to transfer their trust from religion to Jesus. Okay? Here's where he goes now. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to take the first eight verses this morning. And he's piggybacking off his argument. 
At the end of chapter 2, he's dismantling their trust in their DNA as Jews and in their religious ritual of circumcision. And now he's going to swing back and talk positive about it. And then at the end, next week, he's going to swing back and make sure that they don't think wrong things about it. Let me give you two kind of opening thoughts before we read this passage. One is this. Paul doesn't hate Jews. Paul does not hate Jews. He is a Jew. We have terrible race relations right now, generally speaking. We're a mess as a country. We can't seem to get our act together. If you call someone a racist or a bigot, it's one of the worst terms you can call someone these days, and people are slinging that phrase around all the time. If you want to really get your point across, you would add naive or close-minded in front of that. And if Paul were running around today, there's no doubt in my mind that first on social media and then in the media, he would be labeled a naive, close-minded racist because of some of the things that he's saying. And the reality is, he's not. Just listen. I'm going to read Romans 9 where he's going to pick this argument back up, but he says this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What has Paul so worked up? Here it is. Ready? For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who are the seed of Abraham, those who share his DNA, his countrymen, the Jews. So as you hear this, do not hear that Paul is anti-Jewish. Secondly, I want to introduce you to the strongest negative term in the ancient Greek language. And I still remember being at San Jose Christian College and Dr. Beavers teaching me this. He went through Romans, and here's the word, right? It's just fun to say. Meganoita. Say it with me. Meganoita. Okay, that word is just just a really, really strong tone to it. Um, your Bibles probably translate it this way. By no means, certainly not, God forbid. And here's the problem with that. If you throw a British accent on this, this can sound downright gentlemanly. By no means, certainly not, God forbid. And it can sound really passive and all that. It's much more violent than that. It, it, it has this kind of a tone. Not on your life. Not in a thousand years would this ever be true. That's how Paul uses this. And he's going to use this ten times in Romans. Remember our title for this series is Colossal Truth. He's giving big truths, so he's giving big language. And he uses his very first meganoita right here in our passage. And what he's doing is he's defending God's holy name. It riles him up enough to say, may it never be. Not in a thousand years is this true. All right, so watch for that. Romans 3, verse 1, says this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? The very two things he just dismantled, remember, at the end of chapter 2. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. When he says, what then, or then what, he basically signifies the start of this Q&A back and forth. Several commentators agree that in all the letter of Romans, think about this claim, in all the letter of Romans, this might be one of the hardest passages to translate and understand. So if you feel a little lost right now, it's okay. Join the club. Take a deep breath. But part of it is, where is Paul's voice leaving off, and where is the sort of set-up heckler who's questioning him? Where is that coming back and forth? What I want to do is this. I want to show you four questions that are asked and then four answers that are given. Okay? First question is this, and these are in your notes. You can kind of follow along uh, to, to track with it. First question is this, what good is it being a Jew if all are guilty before God? This is what he's asking in the first two verses. Here's the answer. There's much advantage. He says much in every way, but here's the key. It's not what you may assume. There's much advantage to being a Jew, but it's not in the way that you've been thinking. And Paul knows this because he thought the same thing. He had built his life on some presuppositions that were false. What he's doing is this. He's affirming Jewish privilege, but he's also delineating the nature and boundaries of those privileges. You see, Jews don't have a saving relationship with Jesus just because they were born Jewish. Any more than America is a Christian nation, and so if you were born in America, you're a Christian. We all think that's nonsense. The Jews didn't think it was nonsense. That had been passed down and had begun to be ingrained in them. Paul starts this list in chapter 2. Let me give it to you as to all the advantages Jews have. And here's what he does. He gives the first one, which seems to be one of the most prominent ones, and then he sort of comes back to his list several chapters later in chapter 9. He says in verse 2, to begin with, you have the, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were given this special responsibility, this special privilege of having the scriptures. In 9.4, he goes on to say this. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God forever, uh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Do you see that Paul isn't a Jewish hater? He's transferring trust. You do have privileges, Jews, but it's not in the things you, you, you presume. Here's question number two. Has Israel's unbelief canceled God's word? What is Paul's answer to that? He answers it this way. Absolutely not. In fact, it establishes it. He says essentially this. Even if some abandoned their post, Jews, you were given the oracles of God. You were entrusted to be blessed so you would share and be a blessing to all nations. It's always been this way from the dawn of time. And even if you abandon your post, God will never abandon his post. Even if you prove unfaithful, God will never prove 
unfaithful. Even if all fail, God will not. He will remain true in every sense of the word. True to his promises, true to his character. He's dependable. And then most of your Bibles show that uh, this little part in verse 4 is a quote. He's referencing Psalm 51. When King David, one of the great Jews of all time, sinned with Bathsheba, and what Paul's doing is he's going back to a historical account saying, when King David, our great King David, sinned, he affirmed, even though I sinned, God remains just in his word. God remains true in his character. Here's the third question, found in verses 5 to 7. Since unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, isn't God wrong to punish? Here's the answer. God is completely fair, just, and true, and he doesn't cut deals or bargain. You may have heard this before from people. You may have asked it silently or out loud yourself. Who is God to judge? Who is God to judge? What they're saying specifically is this. If my sin somehow honors him and shows off his glory, he shouldn't judge me but thank me. What's interesting with Paul, when he sort of gives this little aside of saying, I speak in human terms, he's kind of saying, look, for the sake of argument, let's just say this. But he so deeply cares for the honor, reputation of Almighty, holy God, that you hear him almost just like really apologetically say, let's say for the sake of argument that he is unrighteous. And he doesn't do it flippantly. He doesn't just slip into that because God's name matters intimately to Paul. God won't show favoritism. He's fair and impartial. This is a big part of chapter 2 that we've already looked at. This is what makes him fit to sit in judgment of the entire human race. He's coming back to this. This is not the kind of advantage that a Jew has. This isn't what it is. You have it mixed up. Verse 8 is the final question. And that is this. Shouldn't I do even more evil so good will come? And here's Paul's answer to that. Basically, he says, I rest my case. That is so against reason and so against the Bible that your condemnation is obvious. This is sort of an end justifies the means mentality, and this is still prevalent today. Look, if somehow I do this and it's evil, but good comes of it, um, you know, it's still the same ending point. And what Paul is saying definitively and, and emphatically here is evil will never produce good. What if you go around speaking the truth of God in an evil, wicked way? And you justify your lifestyle, you justify your treatment of your own spouse and your kids, because God's work is being done. This, this verse challenges that. That says doing the right thing in an evil way will never accomplish God's work. It will never accomplish God's glory. You see the progression of these questions Sometimes you're talking with someone, I've, I've shared with many people, and it just keeps deflecting and devolving, and we get to the silly question of number four. Great, well, if, if evil is showing off God, I should just be a rampant evil person. And we just sort of, sort of devolve to that point. 
The truth is that Paul was actually apparently being accused of this, and here he categorically dismisses nonsense that, that this is true. When you look at these four questions in your bulletin, you kind of see them all four there together. Sometimes there are questions that are behind the questions. So people are raising questions, they're asking questions, they're challenging you about your faith, they want to know this, that, and the other thing. And sometimes there's deeper underlying questions beneath that. Remember Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well? He's there in the middle of the day, he's talking to her, and she wants to talk about everything except for her personal sin. Remember this? Hey, you're a Jew. How is it that you're talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Isn't this a problem? Hey, you guys worship over here, and we say here. Let's talk theology. What does Jesus do? Out of love for this woman, he cares deeply for her that he essentially, metaphorically, takes her by the hand and leads her right to the point of her shame. She wants to talk about all these questions over here, and it gets a little silly, just like it does here. And he just says this. Remember, he undoes her with this question. Hey, go and call your husband. And I just, I just wonder what went on internally with her. Crud. Why that question? Of all the things to talk about, I don't want to talk about that. Go and call your husband. He leads her right to the place of her shame. And he does that because he wants to come in and heal. There is some Holy Spirit, just emotional intelligence that comes with us as witnesses for Jesus Christ. There are times you will be in dialogue with people and they really aren't pursuing the truth. They aren't wanting to get to the bottom of things. They are deflecting and smokescreening everything but their personal sin. You can't get someone, nor should you, in a headlock and arm wrestle them, headlock them into the kingdom of Christ, right? That's been tried in the past. It's terrible. Don't do that. But when you're being asked questions, when you're being asked these things, I, I get a lot of questions. And sometimes people are anonymous, and they send me an email, and they want to ask me a question. And it will take me a significant amount of time to really wait in that question and answer that question. And here's what I've learned. When I was younger, I would have just attacked that because I want to defend the reputation of God, the reasonableness of the gospel, and I would send this big, long thing. And here's what God showed me over the years. Sometimes a question back to the questioner is helpful. Sometimes I will get a question that will require a big, lengthy response. I don't have some canned thing that I can just copy and paste, so I'm going to write it, do it prayerfully. But sometimes I write back this. I write back the question, is this to satisfy your own curiosity? Are you, are you trying to just sort of win an argument? Are you just sort of intellectually interested in this? Or where's your, where's your head and heart at with asking this? What I've learned is this. Sometimes people are asking this, um, just to sort of dance around the intellect and hypothetical and theoretical of things. And I think there are reasons to answer that and go in and attack that, but there's often questions behind the question. And here's my, here's my thought for us this morning. Just like Jesus at the woman at the well, when you're talking to someone, and maybe some of you were this person, in fact, some of you were this person, so you understand like Paul. You can talk to someone who is self-righteous, in their religious worldview and mindset and lifestyle. And you can talk to the self-righteous who are irreligious in their lifestyle, and both are completely smug and controlled and calm and condescending as they talk to a mere Christian who believes in ghosts and fantasies and fairy tales. You can also talk 
to people who are utterly pagan, without God, without any arguments set up. They don't care about any of the arguments. They're pleasure seekers. And what Paul does in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans is he dismantles and seeks to convince the pleasure seeker who is running as far and fast away from God as they can and the religious self-righteous who are doomed in, in their false ideas about what saves them. What he's done is pronounced judgment on all mankind. These first three chapters, we're, we're just calling ruin because over and over and over again, he's just showing how the whole world is ruined. Jew and Gentile, pleasure seeker and those with airtight arguments. The law of God stops every mouth. But catch this, there's hope. There's hope, isn't there? I mean, that's the great news. We don't get to get to it for a couple more weeks, but there's hope. Let me have you look at the title pick for a second. You know, some moments in life show us glory that is ongoing but often overlooked. You may have been out camping before and it's pitch black and there aren't electric lights, you know, for just miles and miles and miles and you look up and you see the glory of the Milky Way and it dawns on you. That's there all the time. That is an ongoing sight to behold, but it's, but it's often overlooked. It's unnoticed. Look at the tense in this picture. The tense in this picture remind us that we are camping, that the earth is not our home. We probably don't struggle like the Jews to tie so much into our citizenship as a Jew or as an American, but the reality is this, your citizenship as an American, all that you might track with the inauguration, all that you might follow with laws and policies of the land, this is not your home. There's a deeper, far more lasting, far more real and weighty citizenship, and that is your citizenship in heaven. How about our bodies? The way we treat our bodies is really important. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies aren't our own. They belong to Jesus Christ. So we ought to honor God with our bodies. But these bodies are temporal. Some of you have been to a funeral within the last year. Some of you have been to a funeral with an open casket. And when you look at an open casket, you see a shell, you see a tent. You say, that is not the soul of the person. That part of them is gone. So circumcision for the Jews, it's important, yeah. But in a billion-year time span, your life is a whisper. It's a blink of an eye. Your citizenship and your body are something far different than we often give credence to. Thirdly, as Christians, we don't understand all that we see or experience, but we point to what has been revealed. When you look up at a night sky like this, you sense your smallness. You sense that, yes, we have Hubble telescopes and things that are looking out there, and we have discovered a lot, but there's a ton we don't know. And this is a picture of the Christian life. As we look up on the glory of God, we'll never plumb the depths of his mysteries and who he is, but what's been revealed to us, what we know of him, we bear witness to that. Almost illegible because it's so small. The person inside the tent is singing a little song. Some of you learned it as a kid. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Here's the point of that. No matter how small your voice, no matter how on pitch your voice, you are going to let your life and your voice bear witness to an awesome 
and able God. And you're going to grow in that. Every single year, it's in the heart of a Christian to show off God's glory in whatever small way they possibly can. Church, be a part of this movement. If you aren't already, be a part of what's going on. People are dying without Christ and living without hope. What does this world look like if pastors don't follow the Scriptures and preach the Word? What does it look like if Christians aren't ready, aren't willing, or aren't able to speak up and give a defense when their God is maligned, when the gospel is drugged through the mud? We've been ending each um, sermon with a short little picture on what do we do out of this passage and what does God do out of this passage? If you're taking notes, jot these down. What we do, before speaking up or taking a stand, get on our knees. Let God inform and prepare everything that you stand up for, everything that you speak up for. Look at me. This includes your thumbs and your fingers. So get on your knees. Pray for wisdom. Pray for love of other people. Pray for yourself. You know where your tendencies are. Get on your knees. Secondly is live with kind conviction. I felt that if we just live with kindness, we would think that's for nice, non-confrontational people who kind of can hold and check their temper. That's not what kindness is. Kindness with conviction means this. We're utterly convinced God has taught us instructed us and will hold us accountable about how we interact with people, about how we stand up for the reason, for the hope that we have. We open our mouth and reason, we close our mouth and pray, and we always do it with what is best for others in mind. We strive daily to put away the flesh, the old man, that wants to fight and clamor and return jab for jab. Thirdly, we celebrate the proclaimer, the explainer, and the defender of the gospel in our midst. Here's what I mean by that. Could you understand how one part of our church family who is a proclaimer but isn't very good at defending the faith could be thought of and looked down by those who have airtight arguments as being somehow less than intellectual as a proclaimer? There are other people that are amazing teachers. They just come alongside. They're just patient as can be, and they just can explain things really, really well. Do you see how a proclaimer, an an explainer, and a defender would all have different personality types, and they might rub each other wrong once in a while? Yeah, that's called family life. The picture of the church as a body shows that we differ in gifts. We differ in function. We all have the same head. The head is Jesus Christ. But God gifts the body in different ways. So if someone is out there being a proclaimer and that embarrasses you, praise God for the proclaimer. Celebrate their boldness. If they get off a little bit, be like those in the scriptures who pull them aside and say, hey, love your enthusiasm. I get really fired up when I hear you. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd become a Christian again. That's awesome. When you say this, I don't think that's quite accurate, and here's why. Do you see how we need each other? The proclaimer, the explainer, and the defender all need one another. Here's what God does. God remains righteous, fair, and true. 
the ages keep putting God on the witness stand, and they take the seat of judgment on God. This is nothing new, and it will never end until the, until the end of time. God is unfazed by this, and he's utterly anchored in his character. God will remain true. That's one of the things that just jumps out at this passage. Secondly is this. Here's what God does. He backs up your claims. If you're standing up for God's name, according to the Bible, he will always come through on what you are proclaiming about him. He truly is awesome and able. So as you make those proclamations, you're not writing checks that you can't cash if you are proclaiming the God of the Bible in the way the Bible explains. Ben, let me invite you to come on up. We're going to use music as a time of response right now, and uh, I would just invite you um, to sing if that's appropriate, because these are prayers, many of them. Uh, Maybe to just let the words sort of wash over you you as you interact with this. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for challenging passages. I thank you for flow of logic and, um, and God just walking through a book of the Bible that leads us in to difficult places. God, we pray today for Jew and Gentile in our neighborhood and in the world. God, that we would transfer trust from whatever we have, self-righteousness or self-pleasure, and to place our trust wholly and completely on the anchor of our souls, Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Amen. Amen.